0: I've spoken before about the concept of brain-computer interfaces. The more invasive of these would involve either surgically installing some kind of gadget into our brains or injecting some kind of nanobot swarm or neural lace so that our thoughts could then connect directly to our technology. The bots or the device we'd have up there in our skulls would have some kind of operating system that would allow us to control our other devices, both inside and outside of our bodies, with a thought, much in the same way we can control our smartphones by typing or swiping or talking at them today. Additionally, this would allow us to do some new, fun stuff with the internet and the services perched upon the internet, like cloud storage. You wouldn't need to have much raw hard drive space in your brain computer, because you could, conceivably, wirelessly upload everything to the cloud. So you could take a photo by blinking your eyes in a certain way, and immediately, the resultant photo would be stashed in your online storage space which itself would be distributed across many servers physically located around the world. You could also, spur of the moment, pull up information that you need for, say, a recipe that you're preparing or a conversation that you're having. And if you've forgotten how long you need to simmer those vegetables or how much flour you need to use in that roux, you can pull up that info immediately with your brain computer and have access to it. In much the same way that you would recall a bit of information that is stored in your biological brain. Media portrayals of cyborgs usually show superhuman creatures with cool metal arms and maybe a flashing red eye. The arm is super strong and maybe has missiles embedded in the deltoid. And the red eye can scan other people with lasers and flash menacingly at bad guys. The real, modern-day version of this, though, is a little less comic book-like and a little more pedestrian. When we use tools like our smartphones, whipping them out when we want to look something up, or when we want to communicate with a friend who's living on another continent, or when we want to store a photo of something that happened in the world around us, we're doing many of the same things we might do if we had brain interfaces. We're just decoupled from that technology. It's not embedded in our bodies, so there's a few steps in between us and that device. And the main downside of that disconnect, not having the tech inside our bodies, is an issue of latency and intuitiveness. Having such an interface in our brains embedded at birth perhaps would allow us to use it without even thinking, just as we can walk and chew without consciously thinking about doing so we might be able to quickly search for tidbits of information on the fly and communicate with friends who are physically elsewhere with thoughtless ease. That knowledge we internally Google would be indistinguishable from thinking and remembering, and that communication with our far-flung friends would be very much like some kind of telepathy. The interfaces we have today are already helping us build these types of reflexes, though and without requiring any surgery or nanobots. And that means we're enjoying many of the same benefits that a fully-baked cyborg might enjoy with just our smartphones and laptops and the networks that connect to them. We know what different pings and vibrations mean. We can glance at a website and understand what it's telling us without consciously assessing each component. And some of us have an always-on understanding of what's going on in the world, where our loved ones are, and what they're up to, and things of that nature, without necessarily knowing how we know specifically. We might have to backtrack and really think about it to figure out which piece of tech, which app, which platform gave us which piece of information that we have then automatically assembled into that larger globe-spanning or family-tracking situational awareness there's still latency. It's still not an instantaneous process. But it's not far from that. Part of why we're so good at this is a human tendency toward what's sometimes called distributed knowledge, which is also sometimes called information outsourcing. As a communal species, we've gotten good at working as a unit with others. And so when we form relationships, we tend to latently distribute thinking and processing and remembering responsibilities. You might remember names while your partner remembers your shared event calendar. You might know all there is to know about accounting while your colleague in the cubicle next to yours keeps tabs on your PR operations. This same relationship exists between us and our technology. You might know some very personal things about your friends and family, for instance, but not know a single one of their phone numbers. That responsibility, remembering those strings of numbers, is more ideally outsourced to your phone. Same with certain aspects of business relationships or recipes you don't need to know right now, but will want to know later when you're preparing dinner. When you write down notes on a piece of paper, you are utilizing technology to carry some of your information load. When you use a smartphone to hold your notes and your contact book and your credit card numbers and your archive of emails and your ebook collection, you're doing some of the same, just on a much larger scale. It should be no wonder, then, that we are living in a world in which most people are massively more capable than ever before. Each one of us has our own internal tribe of specialized information holders tucked away in the devices that we use. And because of this, at the same time, we're also becoming more reliant on these devices because they contain pieces of our brain. They're external brains that we carry around and in which we store portions of our body of knowledge. The totality of our body of knowledge is located in these multiple devices and our own biological brain. So if your phone goes dead, you might lose access to the contact information of everyone you know which sucks, but without that phone, you'd be unlikely to be capable of remembering every last detail about every single person you've ever met the way that you can with such a device. So there are weaknesses inherent in this setup, but there are also incredible powers that many of us use so frequently on a day-to-day basis that we've kind of come to take them for granted. What I want to talk about today is, in part how amazingly capable we are as a result of having access to these machines, but at the same time, how the benefits we enjoy can be detrimental to not just things like our relationships, as is often addressed in pop culture, but also our perception of the world, and even our understanding of fundamental reality. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's Know Things is a listener-supported, independent podcast. If you enjoy what you hear, there are many different ways that you can help support this show. You can leave a review up on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can share it with a friend or with your social network of choice. You can also contribute directly, monetarily, if you go to Patreon.com/slash Let's Know Things. And there, among other things, you will also have access to an ad-free version of the show and the discussions that take place around each episode and various other topics. Patreon.com Let's Know Thanks. Another great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors, the first of which today is HostGator. This is the hosting company that I have been very happily using for many, many years. They have a bunch of great options at whatever scale you might need for whatever project you have in mind. And if you go to HostGator.com LKT, you will receive a substantial discount on their already excellent prices. HostGator.com LKT. And the other sponsor today is Audible. If you go to AudibleTrial.com LKT, you will receive a free month of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice. If you are lacking in inspiration in terms of what book to spend that credit on, stick around to the end of the episode and I will give a book recommendation. All right, let's get back to the show. Tulip Fever is for many entrepreneurs and economics enthusiasts an old favorite story to tell. The basics of this story are as follows. Back in the late 16th and early 17th centuries, the Dutch found themselves first at war with, and then liberated from, their Spanish overlords, who ruled over the so-called Habsburg Netherlands, also called the Seventeen Provinces or Spanish Netherlands, During an interesting period in which the Spanish king Philip II was the regional hegemon of a huge portion of Western Europe, that war, sometimes called the Eighty Years' War, eventually led to the dissolution of the Habsburg Netherlands and the liberation of its regions, which are today the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg. But at the time... There was a lot of conflict, a lot of muscle flexing by the hegemony of Spain, and a lot of very rapid market evolution for the Dutch. It was during this conflict that the fabled Dutch East India Company was founded, and that was just one of many merchant businesses that were founded when the local ports began to open for business without the imposing weight of a monarch leaning on every exchange, taxing and legislating the locals into submission. The arrival of this new market-friendly state of affairs led to a massive influx of wealth for the region, and the rapid elevation of what amounted to merchant kings, a super-successful merchant class, that were as wealthy as royalty, though who, importantly, lacked the same expansionist ambitions of people like Philip II. So out of nowhere, there was suddenly a well-moneyed class of people who weren't so keen, at least at the time, on conquest, but who were super hyped about exploration and the exotic, particularly exotic things related to natural history, as formalized fields like botany and archaeology were just beginning to arrive in the area as serious realms of study worth a rich person's attentions. The arrival of these and other sciences melded with fashion and a series of trend waves washed through the area, where this rich guy over here would acquire a stuffed whatever from the exotic land of wherever, and his neighbor would then try to outdo him with a more impressive, more exotic, stuffed animal of some kind. Tulip fever was one of these waves. It was similar to the acquisition of stuffed, exotic animals from far-off places though the consequences of tulip mania, when compared to the other manias of the time, were far more spectacular and devastating than those of similar hype cycles. Tulips had been cultivated in the region where China and Tibet run up against Afghanistan and Russia since around 1000 AD, and they were treasured by regional royalty from early on in their cultivation. But they didn't start to arrive in the Netherlands, Until this explosively wealthy period, during which the exotic was fetishized and the markets were flush with investment opportunities and wealth. As a result, when the locals found out about this flower, about its beauty, how treasured it was by foreign royalty, and saw how randomly some of the coloration of the flower was determined, which introduced an interesting element of gambling into the mix, because you didn't know. If you would get a commonly-hued flower or something bizarre and striped and multi-hued until the flower eventually bloomed from the bulb that you purchased. And as a result of all that, the whole area went crazy with tulip speculation. Fortunes were wagered credit was utilized to buy whole shipments of tulip bulbs. And this sometimes resulted in bankruptcy. It sometimes resulted in a new merchant prince being born. And everyone at every level of the economic system in the area went totally gaga over this one type of asset, convinced of its value because everyone else was convinced of its value. Truly incredible stories have been told about the levels of ridiculousness that were reached before this tulip bubble popped, which then, in turn, left many people broke and destitute and entire industries, those directly related to the tulip trade, but also those that were merely adjacent to it, they were left completely vacant to value. When these flowers stopped being popular, everyone came to realize how silly they'd been to ramp up the prices so high and to get so excited about something that was, at the end of the day, just a flower. A relatively valueless flower. Vast fortunes were squandered on a flash in the pan trend. Now this is a story that very convincingly illustrates the proverb pride comes before the fall, and it's referenced in numerous business books about speculation and investment and history and riding such waves and knowing when to get out or in some cases avoiding bubbles completely. It's often told as an historical allegory to the dot com bubble to bitcoin To anything else that we want to point at and call valueless, even at the height of its perceived value. And so this story has been very useful to a great number of people to demonstrate a great number of points. But unfortunately, it's not a thing that really happened, or at least not in the way we're often told that it did. The article that I want to start with today comes from Smithsonian Magazine, and it's entitled, there never was a real tulip fever. This article addresses what's real about this story, but importantly also, what is not real about this story. Much of the historical context I outlined a moment ago is real. That was the real situation and a real series of trends that occurred throughout the region during that time period. And the tulip did, in fact, have a period of popularity in the newly moneyed Netherlands, though it wasn't a trend that rippled throughout all levels of society. It was popular with some wealthy people, just like their stuffed exotic animals, until it wasn't. And people paid crazy high prices for tulip bulbs to impress their friends, but it wasn't that different from other previous obsessions. There are no documents indicating that anyone went bankrupt or lost entire fortunes. Businesses sprung up around trading the flower, but just like all the other trendy businesses of the time, some lost money, some gained money, but all seemed to be at least decently prepared for the moment when the trend would end. They'd been through this before, and this particular bubble only lasted less than two years, from 1636 to 1637. It wasn't even the craziest of the documented hype cycles during that period in that region. The reason we have this perception about this particular moment in time and this particular trend, however, is that it was one of the first times at this point in this part of the world in which many relationships which had been up to that point built on trust were abused and broken. Wealthy people began to pre-purchase tulip bulbs ahead of time and on credit, and when the bubble burst and the new batch of bulbs arrived from afar, some of these buyers refused to pay. They didn't want the bulbs anymore, and the merchants holding the merchandise were left with devalued or even valueless stock. This led to some small number of market reforms, but the stories about this period that rippled throughout history, leading to our misunderstanding of this event, were the result of a popular series of pamphlets distributed by Dutch Calvinists. Calvinism, which is a type of Christian Protestantism, That became very popular in the Netherlands during this period, and was actually a big part of why the Eighty Years' War started in the first place. Philip II sent in the Inquisition to cleanse the region of Protestantism so that his favored Catholicism could flourish. And that wasn't taken very kindly by the locals who said, basically, screw you, we're going solo, so get out, Philip. The Dutch Calvinists, like many Protestants at the time were big on maintaining righteous social order. And they worried that the influx of money into the area and the growing propensity for wild spending on trendy things were distracting people from more proper focuses like worship and humility. And on top of that, they'd already seen that the trust that had so long existed in the area between merchants was falling apart because of these same things. So they published pamphlets and distributed them all over the place essentially telling made-up stories of what terrible things tend to befall those who engage in gross consumerism. Anyone who wanted to participate in such bubbles, they warned, were likely to lose their shirt and their relationships and to be seen as fools. Anyone who speculates or operates on credit or inflates economic bubbles is asking for all kinds of trouble. These stories spread like wildfire. And even beyond the region, in which they were initially written down and distributed, they became popular. As a result, they became the de facto documentation of the event, with references begetting references, and many very serious newspapers and books came to include these made-up stories as actual things that happened because there was written evidence that it did. That evidence just didn't happen to be based on fact in the first place. Interestingly... The only reason we now know that most or all of these stories are fabrications is that a researcher who was putting together a new book on the topic delved deep into the really boring, less story worthy documentation from the era. She looked into the books, the accounting, the receipts, the official data, and that paperwork told a very different story. One that we now know, which supersedes the one that we've long been told. A boring tale full of numbers and ledgers, replacing a fun and popular one that we can all more easily understand. Stories like the falsified one about the tulip mania are very satisfying to tell. They allow us to embed tales with heroes and villains, morality statements that we hope to share and that we hope will be remembered. And with each retelling, we can imply More than might have been contained in the original story, allowing us to lecture without seeming to lecture and to teach without boring the would be students to tears. This type of storytelling has become particularly effective in our current period, an age in which the overabundance of information is the problem rather than the opposite. A good story cuts through a million less good stories to reach its intended audience. So, such case studies, such historically relevant proverbs fill out and fluff up everything from best selling books about business to well trafficked blog posts about relationships. It helps these documents and further refined stories become a part of our shared cultural experience. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. By making data relevant to the listener, to the reader, we make it more digestible. I could list strings of numbers to make a point, and that would appeal to some folks in the audience, no doubt, but a far larger percentage, I think, will take in information better when it's contained within a larger narrative. That's how our brains have been trained over the generations to operate. We are a species that started out with a very basic technology, that of oral tradition. We conveyed knowledge across the generations by telling stories to each other, and whether we do that because we are biologically predisposed to enjoy and remember such things better than raw data, or whether we remember better because it's been done that way for so long, culturally, research has been shown that typically it augments our information retention capabilities to share using stories. But there's another side to this coin. Not all information that we share as stories, is true information. Just as we might tell a story of an historical occurrence through the eyes of someone who was there, to make it more relatable and memorable, someone who wants to make it seem as if something else happened, someone else was the aggressor and someone else was the victim of a war, for instance, they might change things around. They might tell the story in such a way that we, the listener, relate better to the real-life villains which in turn can make us root for the bad guy, the Christopher Columbuses of history, despite them having been horrible people who committed what today would be considered to be crimes against humanity. There are reasons to create this type of story, this type of propaganda. In Columbus's case, it was to help build up a shared mythology around which a new country, the United States, could rally. That was the justification. In other cases, it's to make sure that people don't get too caught up in consumerism and will then hopefully spend more time being humble and pray in the Calvinist tradition. The mechanism of sharing information is the same, whether we're disseminating fact or fiction, and it tends to be effective either way. There's another concept that I want to introduce here, and it's expressed nicely in an article from a recent issue of Nautilus magazine. That article is entitled, The Perils of Letting Machines into the Hive Mind, and it covers a few related topics, but focuses on the idea that as we come to have more access to more information, we also come to believe that we know more than we do. Now let's stop and think about that for a second. Simply having access to information does not imply that we know that information. There might be a library right across the street from my apartment, but that doesn't mean I know all the knowledge contained within the books and other media stored at that library. But when it comes to other types of access, for instance, the more intuitive, speedy access that we enjoy when connected via smartphones and other devices to the internet, it starts to feel in some ways as if we do know these things to which we have access. And the mechanics of the internet and the platforms we've built atop it reinforce this vibe. I saw a word defined by a a word-a-day Twitter account, and now I feel I know that word because I saw it. And even though I don't recall the exact definition of that word right this moment, I know I can find the definition within maybe 10 or 20 seconds. Or maybe I've read a headline on Facebook or on CNN which explained some fundamental aspect of a currently developing story. And so I feel that I understand what's happening around me. I'm in touch with the news. I'm informed. In both cases, yes, it's true. We do have more information than before. We know that this word is a word that exists. And we know the outlines of something that happened on the news to the degree that it could be explained in a headline or summary, at least. But research into how this influences our thinking indicates that knowing that we know This little bit, this tiny snippet of information, and also knowing that we could get more information, get the actual definition and the full story, if we wanted to, very quickly, makes us feel more confident that we already know these things. We may feel less inclined, then, as a consequence, to do more research and follow-up, because we're already good, we get it, we know what we need to know. Now this feeling it's posited by that Nautilus piece is maybe a consequence of us behaving as if that knowledge, that data stored or accessed using these devices, information that we have access to, we are treating it as if it's in our brain, ready to be recalled, rather than elsewhere, out on servers somewhere, waiting to be accessed. We are treating these systems, these technologies, as extensions of our own brain, which in many ways is kind of true. I mentioned in the intro that we tend to outsource many internal processes to other people and external tools. That's common and it makes sense that we come to think of the phone numbers in our smartphones as knowledge that we possess, despite not actually knowing those numbers internally in our biological brains. For most practical purposes, those phone numbers may as well be in our brains, as close to hand as they are, as accessible as they are for most of us. But a problem arises when we do the same with other types of information. It can lead us to remember things that aren't true, or that seem to reinforce our existing ideas, but which, in fact, if you look at the big picture, do not. This tendency causes us to recall fun historical stories without feeling that we need to dig through piles of boring accounting ledgers to see if all the details match the overview. And this issue is amplified by the fact that the tools that allow us to do all this cool stuff today, that allow us to access all this superficial information, usually have some kind of virality-incentivizing features built in. Meaning they allow us to share widely by default and encourage us to do so. So we don't just take in superficial information about a topic and then move on, thinking we know a ton about something, but actually not really knowing much about it at all. We also share that feeling with others. We spread our feeling of confidence, not realizing that that confidence could, in fact, be attached to something closer to ignorance. We all come to believe very strongly in our own convictions As a result of this, but we fail to expose ourselves to details that might add more gray tones to the black and white tones that we might reflexively apply to an issue. I told a friend about the tulip mania myth when I was preparing this episode, and she was gutted about it. And to be honest, I was the same. When I first read it, I hated it. I hate feeling like I've been living a lie, like my worldview is partially shaped by fabrications or incomplete stories. It's like learning that Christopher Columbus was actually a royal tool. After years of celebrating a holiday with his name on it, or learning about uncomfortable nuance in any seemingly cut-and-dry storyline that you've been exposed to repeatedly over the course of your life. The mind reels against this type of information. It's easier just not to know in a lot of ways. If you're like me when this happens, you worry That some of your ideals, your morals, your conceptions of how things work are predicated on baseless rumor and propagandized stories. You worry about your role in spreading these myths. You wonder what else you know, like really know as a fact, as a fundamental tenet of your existence, which of these things might actually not be quite so factual, might have been built up in your own mind and retold for some unknown purpose or even just accidentally the important grayscale details wearing away with time leaving just a clean simple caricature of a story that also happens to be incorrect in its place i would argue that these tools that grant us this vast superficial knowledge are vitally important even a surface level awareness of ideas and realities beyond our own is better than complete ignorance about the same. And you can look around and see positive ripples that have resulted from that eye-opening already. It'll be a while before we fully come to grips with the modern reality of being so aware of each other in this way, despite geographic and cultural distances and the barriers that we've always constructed between us and the perceived them. Who knows where that will lead, but we will get there someday. Unfortunately, useful as these networks we've built can be when it comes to disseminating and sweetening superficial information, we lack similar tools that might help us more widely spread the deeper, denser knowledge that's found beyond the headlines and the tweet-length summaries. I'm willing to bet that far more people today are aware that there's a country out there in the world called Uzbekistan, then were aware of the same 20 years ago, before things like Google Maps and Wikipedia added all kinds of random knowledge tidbits to our collective information arsenal. But how much do most of us know about this country beyond its name? An awareness of its existence is a very good start, but how do we progress from that humble beginning, sharing that type of information that outer shell of knowledge, to disseminating something more substantial? How do we teach and learn cultural details, historical context, flavors and sounds and colors and political norms, religious traditions, lacking some big international incident that warrants an above-the-fold headline on a major news network about the country? What on earth would justify learning those types of things about this type of place in today's information distribution ecosystem. The incentives are not there to share that type of information. The business models and social models do not encourage it. And the platforms are not friendly to information that is unsexy and a step removed from our current hype cycle batch of fast twitch concerns. And yet, because of how those same systems are set up, I think many of us feel we know more about most countries than we actually do. If forced to sit down and take a test about any country but our own, and maybe even our own, and without being able to google anything to use any devices to aid us, I'm guessing that very few of us who have not made such studies our prime focus would score higher than an average grade, if that. And this isn't because we're dumb. And it isn't because we lack the desire to learn. It's because the combination of technologies, systems, and economic and social models we currently have in place promote the distribution of some types of information over others. And this leads to what's sometimes called the knowledge illusion, which means that we believe ourselves to be better informed than we actually are. We're exposed to tons of data all day, every day. We know A lot we are fed a lot of information it's just that this information doesn't always attach to other pieces of information very well and it doesn't always build into a firmer more interconnected infrastructure of information that allows us to drive new meaning it's more frictionless coding than challenging bedrock it keeps us skimming along the surface of the totality of human knowledge never really allowing us to dip our heads in and see what's below the surface. And the icing on this sad intellectual cake is that because of the so-called curse of knowledge, we are also predisposed to assume that others know what we know. It's just difficult to put ourselves in the shoes of other people who do not have the same knowledge that we possess about something, at least not without a great deal of effort. So we believe we know more than we actually know, and that, in turn, makes us believe that others probably know the same, which, in turn, reinforces our supposition that what we feel to be correct, both factually and morally, is supported by the majority. We have numbers on our side. How could so many people be wrong? They can't. So we're probably right about whatever. It's not important to our survival and self-realization, probably. That we know the truth of the tulip mania story. But that story is representative of a million other stories that we tell ourselves, myths that serve as morality tales that may, in reality, if we look at the real boring non viral facts, have different lessons that we then fail to learn, that we're not even aware are available to learn. Part of the issue here, I think, is that we live in a world made possible by specialization. The majority of us cannot prove, not in any reasonable time frame, the fundamental scientific principles upon which our technologies, and thereby our societies, are based. We have systems in place that lend us a degree of confidence when it comes to trusting complete strangers, the scientific model, for instance, and the systems of fact-checking and data gathering that are core to the operation of most legit journalistic entities. But even there we see issues. New scientific research is presented by over-enthusiastic or less-than-knowledgeable editors who write headlines that they think will be attention-grabbing, despite being less-than-accurate, or in some cases outright misinterpretations of what was actually discovered, and our perception of these systems diminish. The process of scientific inquiry can be corrupted by politics and capital, as can the journalistic process which makes all of these trusted structures less trusted. And so we find ourselves in a situation in which we have more information than ever before, and we, rightly, in many ways, have learned to access that information as we need it, which in turn gives us a far broader, overarching reach, knowledge-wise, than any generation before us could claim. Even the most well-read scholar living 100 years ago would not have had the same broad range of knowledge that a teenager with a smartphone has when they have access to that smartphone today. But we also, partially as a consequence of that, take shallower dives into that information than might be desirable. You needn't go deep to learn how to convert millimeters into inches, but if you want to understand the full range of variables that led to the Korean War, You'll need more than a superficial understanding, lest you assume that the quick, brief, bulleted list of facts that you're handed within seconds of searching on the topic are all that there is, and lest your worldview, consequently, be shaped by that incomplete, flawed understanding of the event. So, what's to be done about this issue if we do agree that it's an issue? Unfortunately, not much right now, I think, at least on scale. And it will likely only get worse for a time unless some technological breakthrough occurs which allows us to download and internally process huge quantities of information in short periods of time, matrix style. This whole issue is a consequence of our having solved two other issues. The problem of how to disseminate tons of information that was previously siloed around the world and in myriad industries, and then having broken those silos, broken down those walls, how to get the proper information to the proper person in the proper moment. Part of how we do that is by making portions of information available via news articles, Wikipedia entries, and memorable stories we deliver in nonfiction books. Another component is that we make all that information available at all times, wherever you happen to be. You might picture most of what we access every day as little tufts of leafy greens poking up from the soil all around you, which is great. It's wonderful to be able to frolic through those leafy greens. But what we've yet to solve is how to both package and deliver deeper knowledge, how to make people realize that those greens are not the whole plant. If you pull at them for a bit, if you dig a little bit, you'll discover carrots and beets and pumpkins and all kinds of other delightful things. This results in a more complete, and I would argue, more enjoyable information diet. But if we're encouraged by countless variables in the world in which we live to never spend the time pulling these vegetables out of the ground and to just nibble on the leaves and the vines instead we'll never know the difference. We'll never eat a knowledge squash or enjoy an info melon, which would be a shame. So the problem we need to solve for is this. How do you express the deeper story and tell it in such a way that people remember and share it? How do you encourage putting in that kind of additional work when most of the communication channels we have available do not reward us for that labor, and instead actually pat us on the head when we shuffle around as quickly as possible, nibbling here and there but never digging deeper in any meaningful way. How do you get people to care that there might be more underneath the surface if what's down there isn't as immediately catchy and viral as the highly shareable vines and leaves they're more familiar with? I don't know the answer to those questions. I hope someone does or eventually does. Thankfully, for the moment, it's still possible to do a lot about this situation on the individual level, if you choose to. The information is there, buried, even if in some cases it's buried quite deep. But the digging itself can be worthwhile. Remember that the true story of tulip mania was hidden amongst tedious lists and boring day-to-day numerical detritus, and only discovered hundreds of years later by a researcher who decided to keep digging. Our knowledge about that space was incomplete and partially fictionalized until she unearthed that particular enlightenment gourd. Who knows how many other similar discoveries might be out there, and how big they might turn out to be. But all these concepts require that you search for them. You won't be fed this information by someone else, and what you're presented will often be, initially at least, a little too much to digest in one sitting, which is intimidating In a world in which our information comes at us, tapas style, as micro-portions meant to keep us from getting bored, to keep us continuously titillated, it's a type of effort that can be uncomfortable and unappealing, even to those who might otherwise enjoy the topic being researched. On a past episode, I mentioned the concept of intertwingularity, which means roughly that no subject matter is actually separated from any other subject matter, any walls between fields and interests are actually just made up. They're ways of helping us feel that we have things organized and controlled. In reality, the Korean War is connected to the tulip mania, which is connected to the invention of smartphones, which is connected to the voyages of Christopher Columbus. And recognizing that, it makes each portion of knowledge all the more valuable and captivating. As the new pieces reach out and connect to everything else you've ever learned, and all the new bits you'll learn at some point in the future as well. It's a root structure that grows with every new thing you learn, and like most root structures on plants, they can go further and will often become more rugged and stable if you have some really deep branches and root hairs digging ever downward, learning and processing more and more fundamental things which then connect back to all the other fun stuff you are taking in closer to the surface. But no matter how many analogies I wrap this concept in, I recognize that it is a difficult sell. Because again, it's easy to feel very well-informed and very confident in one's own knowledge, even without going beyond the superficial. And the effort required, today at least, to read beyond the headline and the summary to consume books that aren't just revisitations of the same things you've heard elsewhere, the effort required is substantial, and it's not an easy passive task, and it's nowhere near as immediately rewarding for most of us as the alternatives. One of the grandest challenges we face, then, might not be figuring out how to make this knowledge more accessible and distributable and consumable in terms of the technologies and systems we use, but rather convincing ourselves that it's valuable and necessary to begin with. If you are enjoying the show, consider becoming a contributor on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash letsknowthings, you can join the community, set up a monthly contribution for whatever is comfortable for you. You'll get access to all the discussions. You'll get access to an ad-free version of the show and potentially some additional goodies as well. There are other ways to contribute to the show monetarily as well using PayPal or Venmo. You can go to letsnotethingscom contribute to find links to those options. And there are also plenty of non-monetary ways to contribute as well. Leaving a review up on iTunes is a great Quick, easy way to do so. Those reviews are a lot more valuable than you might think in terms of bringing in new listeners. And it's also very helpful if you share the show with a friend or with your social network, anyone who you think might enjoy it. Word of mouth is by far the best way to bring in new listeners to this type of show, and I very much appreciate any efforts in this regard. Another great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors, the first of which today is HostGator. HostGator is the hosting company that I've been using many, many years very happily. They have great customer service, they have very reasonable prices. I personally have a reseller account with them so I can manage multiple projects from one dashboard, which also gives me the ability to run websites for my family members when they decide that they want a website for whatever hobby they're currently involved in. But they do have plans for all shapes and sizes of projects, from a simple blog all the way up to a huge business. And if you go to HostGator.com slash LKT, you will receive a substantial discount on whatever type of plan you might be interested in. This is a great way to help support the show, but also a great way to get an even more reasonable price than they typically offer on their services. HostGator.com slash LKT. And the other sponsor today is Audible. If you go to AudibleTrial.com slash LKT, you'll receive a free 30-day trial of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice, absolutely any audiobook from their sprawling collection. And if you don't already have a book in mind to spend that credit on, the book I'd like to recommend today is called Hitmakers by Derek Thompson. This is a really wonderful book, very readable, full of interesting stories and case studies, almost tulip mania level case studies to a certain degree, but in a lot of cases it takes the opposite tact where rather than telling these stories as morality tales, it sets them up as common knowledge types of tales and then knocks them down again. The big focus of this book is virality and popularity within a variety of different fields and settings today and throughout history. And the author is very fond of setting up these established ways of thinking, things that we believe to be true for a variety of reasons, and presenting us with these types of stories that we also immediately, reflexively believed to be true before demonstrating why they're not using modern data, modern psychology. This is a great book for people who are involved in business and trying to sell something, a product, or an idea. But it's also just really wonderful if you want to understand what tactics and tools and psychological techniques are being used against you to certain degrees to sell you things and convince you of things. It also demonstrates a whole lot of the commonalities between things that become popular, even across multiple different fields and time periods. So definitely worth the read if you get the chance. Again, that's Hitmakers by Derek Thompson. You can find out more about me and my work if you go to colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at Things.com. While there, consider signing up for the free... Weekly Let's Note Things newsletter, which contains a collection of links to interesting things. If you are into that sort of thing, you can find me on all the social networks at Colin is my name, except on Facebook where I'm just Colin Wright. Feel free to reach out and say hello. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.